What's up, y'all? Welcome to another episode of Rethinking Christianity. On today's episode, I interview a friend of mine named Drew Anderson. Drew is the pastor of a church called Sumter Chapel, and he is also an author. And today's discussion is all around the book that he wrote uh, called No Longer Self-Evident, where this book, he asked the question, are we more American than Christian? Uh, And this conversation doesn't really target the political aspects of Christian nationalism and some of those things that have been really popular in conversation lately. But what he talks about is how the church uh, and the way church operates has been influenced by American culture, marketing, branding, and just the way America operates uh, within capitalism and the way that America just operates as a whole. And so this uh, conversation was really interesting, and it was something that I felt was really helpful for me, and and I got some good insights from it from Drew, and, and I think you would also. If you could do me a favor by sharing and reviewing and rating the podcast, that would be super helpful. And with all that being said, here is the interview with Drew Anderson. On today's episode of Rethinking Christianity, we have Drew Anderson. Drew is a friend of mine. Uh, He's also the pastor of Sumter Chapel and the author of the book, No Longer Self-Evident. And in this book, he asked the question, are we more American than Christian? Uh, I'm excited for Drew to be on and just to kind of get to talk about this book and some of the ideas that he presents of how uh, the American church has been heavily influenced by American culture. So Drew, thanks thanks for coming on. Yeah, it's glad to be with you. I'm glad to be on the podcast. Sure. Um, before we get rolling into the book, um, so, so Drew's someone I've known for a while now, um, probably since like high school, um, end of high school, maybe my 12th grade year. I don't re- at least I, when I was a freshman in college still yeah. at home. But um, so Drew's now the pastor of a church called Sumter Chapel. And I think the strategy that they implement in their church is really, really cool. Uh, and I would love for our listeners just kind of hear some about you know, the heart behind what you're doing at the church that you're at, just because I think it would be uh, encouraging for maybe listeners that are um, skeptical towards like organized church and maybe the models of church that they've observed or been a part of, and it just hasn't connected. Um, And maybe you can, what you can talk about can maybe present to them like something that they could be looking for. I know it's kind of rare, but I think it's a a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. I I think it's rare still for now, but I think it's moving in a direction where it's going to become much more common. And it's uh, the most common structure of the church all over the world. It's the most common models of the church all over the world. And it was the most common model when the first churches got started. And it's really just a small, uh, small group of people focused church. And, and we started out, it's not really about the size at the end of the day, it's about the relationships. So we're not going to tell you how, how large or how small you need to be. We're just going to say, this is what we value. And if you can't value that thing by growing something really large, then you probably shouldn't, right? And so the value is really around um, the relationships. And in this most recent season, we've been using family language, familial language, but we've always kind of uh, leaned that direction. So the last uh, ministry we were a part of, the church there was larger, and it allowed me to start to experiment with some like smaller more intentional uh, ministries and trying to really like form life together as if we were family. And what I discovered in kind of trying to, to model this out in the community where we were was that the table and these kind of depth of relationship groups um, were really effective 
not only in just our own spiritual growth, but actually in the growth of the church and in the unity of the church as well. Like people will gather around relationships in order to be formed into the likeness of Christ. Um, and they'll experience it in a deep way that's transformative more often than they will around just like a cause or a big organization or something like that. So causes and big organizations aren't bad, but do they produce, do they produce Christ-likeness? Do they produce what we see in the disciples, what we read about in Acts? Do they produce the things we see the Holy Spirit doing across the history of the church during revivals and awakenings? And I think it's worth asking those questions. And so we started a church with the goal that, hey, everything we do is going to be centered around relationships. And we use the language of the table, partly because, you know, gathering around meals, sitting around a table, having coffee with someone at a table, that's, it's always that people relate in very natural, normal ways in the world. It's, it's a way that Christ incarnated himself, right? So the table of Christ is at the center of the entire faith of Christianity, right? Communion is the very beginning. It's the, it's the meal by which Jesus ushers in the new covenant and the new relationship. So, so that became kind of our focus. And what has come out of that is we uh, continue helping people to start these kind of smaller communities of faith right where they're at. And we're a part of doing that in our own lives. Um, we're leaning into that in our own lives, but then we're helping others start those right where they're at with the people that they're around. And so we have um, a number of these smaller groups going already. And we, we consider them the church, as long as, as long as they are functioning as the church, as the basic definitions of church um, can be defined, then then they're the church. They don't need a building. They don't need a budget. They don't need staff. They could have those things, right? We have some of that um, in our expression of it, but but they don't need those things. And um, and so we really are like going in full on to believing that that we we don't have to attract people to some sort of larger model. That's one way to do it. If people want to do it that way, fantastic. But we we actually do believe the 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 best image of Christ displayed in this world is through these spiritual families that form in these smaller expressions of the church. So, um, so that's something we set out to about three years ago. We, we kind of surrendered to that journey of the, uh, a church had disbanded here in the area we live. They had stopped meeting. Their pastor had retired and it was proposed to us, would you like to come in and start something in its place? And we kind of said, well, if we're going to start something in its place, it's not going to be the same thing that everyone else is, is used to seeing it's going to be very different um, because our experience has been um, in our previous ministry setting that that was where the most significant growth in our own lives and in the lives of others, that's where it happened. It didn't happen in the large group gatherings. It happened in the smaller settings in, in the depth of relationships. So that's, that's, cool. where, that's where we've been going. Yeah. And I remember when you first, y'all first started, you were kind of mentioning um, the cue cards and things like that, that y'all would yeah. have. Yeah. The table. So yeah. Drew, men Drew mentions um, the table, like, and when he says that literally they would have tables out. Yeah. Um, and didn't you say y'all would begin with the message? Isn't that correct? Y'all would begin with the yeah. message and yeah. have conversations or, like these cue cards would have prompts on them and questions similar to like small group questions or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And then that way people are forced to like have conversation, which yeah. um, it is impossible to um, just get by in that kind of setting or, or go, go missed. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I remember you mentioning uh, early on about it, 
that it's it goes against our natural like inclination our natural like because most of the time we don't want to be uncomfortable and so it creates kind of it, it can be for some people create this uncomfortability but what we often find in following jesus is you know uncomfortability is what leads to the most growth and so i'll i when you were telling me about that i was like wow that's really really compelling and interesting yeah. and yeah. um definitely a lot different and i think what's cool about it is um it reflects the convictions that you kind of talk about in your book um, that church is not this thing that you have to like grow to be this big brand or whatever. And I think we, I think people are beginning to realize like the, that it's not always bad that, you know, that's not what we're saying that it's always bad, but it can be bad a lot of the times and it can create things if it's not kept in check. Uh, and so I'd love to hear um, about this book. So you wrote this book, what, about a year or so ago? Just over um, a year ago. Yeah. Yeah. So it's called no longer self-evident. And like I mentioned, it, it questions, are we more American than Christian? Uh, and it's, it's such an interesting conversation because it, it definitely reflects um, this kind of influence of American culture, American marketing and American branding and capitalism into the church. Uh, and so I'd love to for our listeners just to hear kind of like what birthed like some of these thoughts uh, behind the message in this book. Yeah. Yeah, so it originally came out of, and I explained some of this in the introduction, but it originally came out of a question similar to the one I'm asking that a mentor of mine asked me um, well over 15 years ago in college. Um, and he didn't ask, just ask me, he was asking the leadership team in the ministry I was a part of, but it was, do we look more American than Christian? And I just wasn't able to shake um, shake that question. And, and for well over 15 years now, I've been processing it all along the way of, do, do I look more American than Christian? Like if a Christian from somewhere else in the world showed up here, could they tell that I'm Christian or would I just look American to them? And then also tell, would I have to tell them I'm Christian? Like that's the, that was kind of my, my thought process with it. So all along the way in my own relationship with God, my own spiritual growth, I began to ask this question. And then I began to ask it of the church and each church that I was a part of every ministry where I found myself and then just the broader church in America, I, I keep you, this has been a question, a refrain that I just kept asking, like, man, is this Christian? Is this distinctly Christian, how we're doing this? Or is it American? And and we're using it as like, hey, we're contextually American. So this is how we're going to reach other Americans. That's It's all fine and well. We do need to be contextual. We obviously need to do things that are going to connect with those around us. But we have to be careful that those things aren't the things shaping our faith, that our faith is distinctly Christian, and that whatever we're we're doing to kind of meet people where they are, they are, it's not, it's not the foundation of, of our faith. It's not the foundation of our organization. It's not the foundation of our identity. And I think those lines have been blurred over time. And a lot of the times the church does things that are distinctly American, and then they begin to believe things that are distinctly American, and that they're they're not actually believing the things that are Christian anymore. They're not actually believing the principles that cross culture and that inform every culture around the world, um, and that incarnate themselves into the cultures around the world. And so, so this question just nagged me, and um, and in a good way, it began to form me. I began to experience things and I would identify them and go, wow, that was not a distinctly Christian way to handle that. That was a very American way to handle that. Um, what would be the the biblical way to do this? And um, and and so it began to shape me. And then last year, uh, going into last year, 
it, it was still pre-pandemic. Uh, excuse me. <coughs> I'm sorry, you're going to have to edit that out. Um, I had a cough all of a sudden. So last year, going into the pandemic, um, we, we had Lent, right? Before the pandemic hit, we were in the season of Lent leading up to Easter. And I felt God impress upon me to start fleshing out the, some of the things I had begun to understand through asking this question into a blog series for just our people, just for the people in our church. And, um, and so I did, I started fleshing it out. And then the pandemic hit about halfway through Lent and I had finished the series. I hadn't published them all yet. Like I hadn't put them all out there yet because I was doing it weekly, but I'd finished the series and I had a friend of mine who was helping me do that. I was you know, putting them on his blog site. And he said, Hey, this, you, you might want to make this into a book. Like this is, this could be something that has a broader audience than just your church. Like people were wrestling with this. And, um, and I, I agreed. I was like, yeah, this is something we need to all wrestle with. And, and the name of the book and even the cover of the book could cause someone to believe um, that I, I, I address political things. I, I don't do that in this book. There, there are people who are addressing some of the more political specific topics about being American versus Christian. I'm looking at it much more of like the church. As the church, uh, have we been formed by the American culture around us and how we organize ourselves and how we act and behave? And that includes politics and how we involve ourselves in politics. But I'm looking at more of the actual like organization of the church, relationships of the church, spiritual growth. That's where I went with it. I wanted it to be much more of an internal conversation instead of a cultural critique outwardly of, of American culture and like out, out here somewhere. I wanted to be in here. And so um, that's how I wrote the book. That's the motivation of the book because it was an internal journey for me. I wanted it to be an internal journey for people and for churches to look within and ask themselves, hey, are we behaving in a distinctly Christian way or do we just look American? Yeah, no, I, I, I think the book is really cool. And what you mentioned about dealing with it like internally, because um, there's parts of each each chapter in this book has like questions that you have to wrestle with. Uh, and so what I find it, I find that very helpful a lot of times because it's sometimes books you just read it. And it's an information overload. But the thing about this book that's really cool is you have to personally deal with it. And when you personally deal with something, you begin to recognize how you're also participating in it. And, you know, that's kind of where I've had to, you wrestle with and recognize like, okay, what mindsets do I need to reconstruct, deconstruct, and then reconstruct into what the way of Jesus looks like in the church today. And I think that when the American, uh, branding american culture has influenced the church so much we no longer are teaching the way of jesus we're teaching the way of america um and we sprinkle jesus a little bit here and there along the way um so it's it's definitely it's a definitely a thing that i think a lot of people are wrestling with and i have myself as i've been kind of thinking through like what does it mean for me to be a follower of jesus in america today as if i were walking with jesus thousands of years ago um and what i mean by that is obviously it's not going to be literally the same but, but like what practices should I be taking up? What type of life should I be living? And all those things are very, you know, opposite of what we see in a lot of the modern church today. Uh, and I think it's a question that really is, is important to deal with. Um, so how do you think or, or where did this kind of, you think, start where American culture is, has influenced like the church more than the scriptures and even the historical church did? Because what's so interesting is there's so many practices that 
I mean, in the history of the church, like not that long ago that we've just completely abandoned um, and things that were, were good spiritual practices. So what, what do you think was the cause of that? Or like, what, how did that, how does that morph into what we see today? Yeah. Um, I, it, I mean, every, every church in every country uh, has the potential to allow itself to be conformed to its culture. And it's just, you know, that's just true all over the world. So we're not unique in that in America, but because this is where we live, this is our context, we need to uniquely address it, right, among our people. Um, and so it's possible for everyone. And I think, honestly, there's there's probably, we could go back to the very founding of our country and the very first people who came here, that there are things that began to shape our understanding of church from that period on. Um, and and so we could even go all the way back and start identifying things. But in most recent years, I think in the most recent decades, years, generations, I think some of the biggest stuff that have influenced the church are um, industrialization, business models, and in like technological understandings of things. And so these are all things that are creations of human that are not inherently bad, right? We created yeah. the industrial resolution. We create kind of business principles and models. We created technology, which shows image of God in us. Like, the, you know, God was a creator. We're a create, we're creative. None of it is inherently bad, but, but, but when we use the things we create as then the models for something, as then a model for something that we didn't create the church, we're, we're, we're getting into some, some difficult, you know, grounds, some shaky foundations at that point, right? Because the church was not ours. It is not ours. We did not create it. God did. He ushered it in through Jesus Christ. And so, you know, there's some, there's reasons why Jesus uses the analogies he uses. There's reasons why the Holy Spirit leads Paul to explain the gospel and explain the church the way he does. I, I know people can, can get really weird about like, well, why is the, the metaphors that Paul use any different than the metaphors that we use? Well, all I know is the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to use those, and they ended up codified in a book that that the Holy Spirit has surely brought together and kept together over the generations. So it's not that our metaphors are inherently bad, but they might be incomplete, or they may just not be the most helpful ones. And so a business model analogy for the church leads you to behave in a certain way, right? It leads you to treat the pastor as a CEO. It leads you to you know, make decisions based on certain things like marketing and uh, attraction and customer acquisition and guest experience. I mean, we use a, we use a lot of that language yeah. in the church world today, right? And and I just don't think it's helpful. I don't think it's a helpful means by which explaining what the church is. You know, the Bible is very clear talking about the church being two. I mean, there's two distinct metaphors for the church, and it's the family of God, a spiritual family, and then a body of Christ. And, and the family language, um, it goes across the entirety of scripture. So for me, it's really the main metaphor for the people of God across the entirety of scripture is the, is the family metaphor. And then we get the body of Christ inserted into the New Testament. Why? Because it's kind of this understanding of God being incarnate in Christ, and now he's incarnate in us together as the body of Christ. And so then we can unpack that. But for me, the family metaphor becomes the main main metaphor. And why that's important is because the way I behave when I understand the goal of the church being family 
is totally different than when I think it's just an organization or a business or a social club or all of that sort of thing. And so, you know, I just, I make different decisions at that point. I treat people differently at that point. Um, this, this is something that's happening right now. Right now, there's a lot of disagreement around masks and vaccines and politics, right? So there's all kinds of division. And I heard a pastor stand up in a very large church and say, basically charges people to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, that this is the the calling of the scriptures. And we use that language so much, we don't even understand what we're saying, I think. How can you love someone as a brother and sister in Christ if you don't know them as a brother or sister? Like if you if you don't have a familial, spiritual, familial relationship with someone, how can you love them in that way? So it's not that you can't love them. You still should love them as at least as a neighbor, right? That's for sure. You should at least love them as a neighbor, but you can't love them like a brother and sister if you don't know them like a brother and sister. So we can't just use this language nondescriptly and be like, oh, you're my brother and sister in Christ, but I don't know you. (laughs) you, You're one of a thousand other people. You're one of 200 other people that I see every week. I don't really know who you are. How can I even love you in that way? Like how, how can I sit down and disagree with you in a way that is loving when I when I don't even have a concept for that, I don't have an experience of it. And um, it's not that we have to know every single person that way, but if we don't even have that relationship at all happening in our life, like here's the idea. If I've never experienced a family of God in my life, then there's no way for me to then extrapolate how to love brothers and sisters in Christ who I don't know as brothers and sisters in Christ, right? So this is what I mean. If I have a small group of people that are loving me as the family of God and I'm loving them and we're, I mean, we're in it through thick and thin, we're, we're challenging one another, encouraging one another, we're confessing sin to one another, we're growing in Christ likeness, we're serving the world together. If I don't know what that is like, a healthy spiritual family is like, then when I come across someone else who I don't know personally, but I know that they're a brother or sister in Christ, like I know that they're following Jesus and they have their own spiritual family. If I don't know how to healthfully love brothers and sisters in Christ, then I can't love that person who I'm not in direct contact with all the time, but I know is a brother and sister in Christ. I can't love them like a brother and sister in Christ because I've never actually experienced what it's like to love people as a brother and sister in Christ. And that's, that's my greatest concern with how American culture has currently shaped the church is that we've used all these other modes and models and metaphors. We've learned all these other ways to organize the people of God. And we're no longer organizing ourselves as a family of families. We're no longer organizing ourselves in a way that scripture sets us up to be. And so then we can't even function in the way scripture sets us up to be. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And like thinking about it through the lens of like how we, the metaphors that we use for church is very interesting because like, you know, there's whole conferences around leaders, Christian leadership. But I mean, what you're finding is, and again, it's not necessarily bad. It just, if it impacts the way that you, you view the church and and I've never really thought about that before, but the way I view the church is how I feel I ought to operate within the church. And that's really like, kind of concerning if all of our metaphors and the language and the symbols and signs that we use to represent church are all influenced from um, business, outside culture, and um, the the way of America. And so 
That's really, really interesting. I'd like to talk about, um, so like materialism. So I think that this goes hand in hand with um, the American way influencing the church and uh, pastors of like, I guess, larger churches, because you've seen it through like Preachers and Sneakers has shown that in a joking way, but it's something that has resonated with a lot of people clearly um, because it blew up. And so how have you seen kind of like this this tying of American culture to the church um, bring in this influence of like materialism and more, 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 got to have more Um, the influence that it's had on the church. And not only that, but also how it influences the decisions and the ways that pastors feel that they have to operate in their role as a pastor. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's multifaceted for sure. And uh, there's this whole argument around like, should we have buildings? Should we not? Like, I mean, we can get into all those arguments if we want to, but I understand that we live in a culture in America where having a building could be advantageous. I I understand that nothing is inherently sinful about having a building. And I understand that there is something that can be displayed to the world that's beautiful through having a building that is well done, that is beautiful, that displays for others the image of God and the create within the creative ability of humans to make things that are beautiful. So there's nothing I'm, I have nothing inherently against buildings, material things, nothing. Cause a lot of the times those things can point to spiritual realities. Um, and most times they do, but, but the problem is when those material things and the way we spend our money is material oriented and not eternally oriented and not people oriented ultimately, um, and people just become the commodity that are a part of this m- way we're spending money. So an example, uh, and we could point to pastors, we could, and I'll, I'll point at my own life. Like I, the people get upset at me when I point at pastors and they're like, would you want people to judge you that way? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Like I, I, I agreed to fulfill the role of the pastor. That means I'm submitting myself to accountability. Like what people get mad at me when I want to question yeah. what what pastors are doing and and then they think like, I'm not willing to be held up to that same scrutiny. No, I am. I'm asking you to scrutinize me as I'm calling all of us to scrutinize what it means to be an American pastor. So anyways, I'm not going to point fingers at pastors. I'm going to say us as the church as a whole, like when we make decisions of money, they have consequence. And so when we decide I'm going to spend half a million dollars on a new sound system and video system and worship, you know, center for our student ministry, that that's a decision you're making. Like you're taking money and you're using it for that thing. And so what are the ramifications of that decision? What have you just shown people that you value? And are you actually showing people that you value people or not? I think it's worth asking. Do we, do we want to do things well? Yes. Should we do things in an excellent way? Sure, we should. Do we need an entire uh, sanctuary filled with gold? That's a whole different situation. Do we need the most modern building in town that has the best technology? I mean, these are valid questions. Like if we're trying to reach people who are struggling on a daily basis, if we're trying to follow Jesus to the edges of our society, and, and then what we're building are extravagant facilities. Are we sure that's what we want to do? Are we sure that's the best way to present the image of Christ to the world? I, it deserves to be asked. And I'm not telling people where to land. 
I, I, I'm, I'm just not going to go there. Like it doesn't, I, I'm less concerned with the decision that you end up making than the reason you make the decision. Cause I actually believe if you get the reason right, you'll make the decisions that glorify God. And so um, every context is going to be different, right? Every context is going to be different. Every decision is going to be unique. And yet the reasons why we're making those decisions have to be consistent. And we more often than not in the American church choose materialism then we choose people like we do. We more, I've been around way more arguments in churches that were centered around the purchasing of things. And the debate was around the purchasing of that thing than how that thing was going to even impact people. (laughs) You're not even thinking about the people which you claim are the reason why you're doing this thing. We haven't yet to even talk about the people. We've just been debating the thing. And and so that's that's where my struggle is, is like, we've got to make sure when we're making these decisions, we're not thinking about the material things. We're thinking about people. That's the reason God has made us stewards of this world is for people and for their souls. And if we're just going to spend all of our money on a building, if we're just going to spend all of our money on programming, if we're just going to spend all of our money on these things that aren't impacting the generational lives of others, um, I, I question if we're being good stewards. And so at one point, that's why I ask, I ask, is it better, is it better for us to spend a hundred thousand dollars renovating the kids wing, or is it better to, to turn around and use that hundred thousand dollars to help multiple families in our community, start businesses for the first time and, and change the trajectory of generational poverty in their life. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. it's worth asking like what we just need to be asking these questions about how we spend our money. I would agree with all, pretty much all of that. And there are, I mean, you know, this is not us saying that there aren't churches that are doing good things with their money. Oh, you know, and, right. and they still have, the, the, the thing that I, what I hear you saying, you can uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is are we just blindly making decisions with money instead of consciously making decisions? And I think that that's the big, that is a big thing because that is the way, that is the way of, America, because look at the, the, the income to debt ratio in this country, the same, I mean, the consciously, where are we consciously spending and using our money? Um, Yeah. So I definitely, I definitely agree with all of that. And I think that it's something that we have to just continually be aware of um, because the scriptures talk about, you know, what, where you, what you treasure your heart will treasure also. And like those things that we want, um, the more, more, more uh, can often lead down this path that I think um, affects what you had just kind of talked about, like the soul. Um, and, and, you know, something you talk about in the book is that um, you can lose your soul while being at church. Like you can be a part of a church and and lose your soul. So how do you think that, do you feel that um, there's a connecting point between um, this American type of church that we've kind of been hitting on and this idea that you can lose your soul in the midst of that. And I think yeah. that you can do that at any a little country church or wherever. Oh yeah. You know yeah, what yeah. I mean, I think it, again, yeah. more about like, what are we consciously, That's what right. decisions are we consciously making within the yeah. church? Um, so, so what do you, what is your kind of thoughts on that? Like this idea yeah. of you can lose your soul while also being a pastor of a church. Obviously yeah. we've seen that and yeah. being a volunteer, a congregant, or just lay person, whatever it may be. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, it's, it's one of the chapters in the book that um, 
it's still one of the hardest ones for myself to reflect on for, for my own life. Right. Um, and it's a part of my own story is just getting lost in the general American church culture and really losing my own just personal relationship with God in the midst of it. And, um, you know, Jesus is asking that question of people who are Jewish and who are trying to honor God, right? They're the church people of his day. He's asked, he's, he's saying, Hey, or, or he's making a statement. I don't think he asks this question now that I'm talking about, but he said, you can gain the whole world and lose your soul, right? You can gain everything this world has to offer. And we church people love to apply that to the sinful people out there, right? It's like, oh, look at them partying it up and sleeping around and doing all this stuff. And they're gaining the whole, you know, spending all their money on cars and all this stuff. Oh, they're gaining the whole world and losing their soul. Well, we can do it in the church too. You can seek the approval of man. You can build gigantic buildings. You can market yourself and become the greatest influencer in the world. You can you can catch yourself as a, just a member of a church getting caught up in just this organizational momentum of a thing and never actually have a relationship with Jesus when it's all said and done or lose your relationship with Jesus, lose your soul in the process. You came to faith genuinely. You started a relationship with Jesus in a genuine place. You wanted to be a servant. You wanted to sacrifice. You wanted to do all this thing. And then somewhere along the lines, it became about climbing the corporate ladder of the American church. Somewhere along the lines, it became about people looking at you, right? Some of the, great, the greatest teachings of Jesus, some of them are, hey, don't let your one hand know what your other hand is doing. Like pray in your closet, not out in public. Uh, when you fast, don't even tell anyone. And of course, the fad right now is social media fast and you tell everyone, right? Oh, I'm signing off. I'll see you later. I'm on a social media fast. And it's like, y'all, the script, <laughs> Jesus was pretty clear. Like that's, we don't do that. Like that's not what we do. Because we're not looking for attention. We're looking for God. We're looking for a genuine relationship with Jesus. So, like, th these, are re these are real life things. Like, this is a real life struggle of how am I going to live out my faith? Is it going to be in a way that's going to end up causing me to lose my relationship with God because I get caught up in the way the world wants me to be a religious person? And, and, and then how the church ends up reinforcing that at times. Or is it in a way that's going to produce a genuine relationship with God, a continued genuine relationship of his presence and his Holy Spirit, and is going to continue in this pathway that's healthy for my soul? And um, I think the biggest, uh, I'll say, this is a conversation I've had time and time again over the last however many years, years, I mean, maybe decade, the biggest way that we're causing a lot of Christians to lose their soul is we're burning them out. We're telling them that. You're, the greatest thing that you could experience in this life is rest in the presence of God, Sabbath rest in the presence of God. And then we never actually show people how to Sabbath rest. We, and then we create a church model that causes them to have to work. Like they have to do stuff and wear themselves out for the name of Jesus. And we burn them out. Like we run through people in the church, like they're, like they're a commodity, like they're another so bewildering. Yeah. Like they're another cog in the system. Yeah. And then we're, and then we're confused when they disappear. Like yeah. we're, we're confused when they burn out. We're well, like, the thing is, it, and then we like, blame them. We blame them and we guilt them. We're like, yeah. well, you should have had a, a stronger relationship with Jesus or you should have been creating rhythms of rest. And it's like, wait a minute, isn't that on us? Aren't we the ones asking them to do things that are now causing them to burn out? So like, it's a both end. Yes, it's on them. 
Yeah, there are situations where people burn themselves out because of their own um, unhealth or their own immaturity. Sure. But what I've seen more, more consistently than that is the church is burning them out. Like the church leaders are burning them out. The church leaders are not having healthy rhythms in their own life. And so then they're imposing the unhealthy rhythms that they have in their own life onto the other people. And, and I've had to deal with that in my own life. Every single chapter in this book, I have had to deal with and continue to deal with on a deep level. Yeah. And what I find really interesting, and, and I thought about this earlier, but is so like the way in which churches often do that is we equate, we've taken the American way of big and we've equated that with God. So if a lot of people equals move of God or big conference, thousands of people, hands lifted equals move of God. And, and my thing, when you do that, you know, people think, oh, I'm, if I'm here, I'm serving as a part of the move of God. And if I, if I feel bad about that, then, then maybe. And so I have been I've been thinking through that and I'm like, that is such a frustrating thing. And it's such a like it's so misleading. Uh, and I've seen it time and time again where like and, and I'm not bashing conferences. I'm not bashing big churches. I'm you know, if those things are helping people follow Jesus, then great. But I think the language that we use and the way yes. we communicate what truth is is really important or what, um, what Jesus intended, um, is really important. And so I've seen it time and time again on like social media, you know, there'll be a conference and it'll be a lot of like people and someone will take a bit, pan the room and be like, wow, revival is here. And, and maybe so I, I, but does that, does that always equal, That's does right. big always equal move of God or revival? And I think yeah. that everything yeah. that you've been talking about is, is kind of like, you know, that is a result of this American big thing. I mean, we look at our football stadiums, we look at our, the businesses, we want more and more and more. And Jesus literally in, you look at Matthew and the Beatitudes, he's really talking about, Hey, let's have less and less and less. And it's like, we want more and more and more. And and it's just this crazy thing that exactly what you talked about is it's impossible to like, like it's impossible to find rest because we're always trying to get to the next thing. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that the, the emotional health of people, and this is, this is a whole nother conversation, but I think that people, if they would look at the way of Jesus, it is, it's very slow, like very slow. I think a great, you know, if you're listening to this, Eugene Peterson has good stuff on that. Uh, Pete Cesaro has good stuff on that. John Mark Comer has some good stuff on that. And it's basically stuff that we're talking about is, is that the big church doesn't have to be the only way. And that that's if you're right. like, if you're someone that's listening and you're hearing this conversation and you've had like bad experiences in churches, like, and this can happen at a medium sized church, but what we're presenting hopefully is that the way of Jesus more often than not looks vastly different than the American church that we see today. Vastly different. So I, I want to clarify that, like, you, you're making some good clarifications that like, this isn't actually, it doesn't end up being a big versus small thing. No, that's not. It's it's not it at all. Like, the uh, what, what the reality is, is what the big churches do is they pretty much just display on a larger scale what could be the problems of any size church, right? So, yes. so it's not that they're different problems. They're just, they're just more, they're just on a larger scale. And and so small churches can have these problems too. They can work, work themselves to the bone and not teach them how to rest either. So, yeah. so like the, the, the struggle here is not, not really around size, but what you do identify is it's around value. It's around the value that we're imposing. We're saying 
if it's big, then it's a move of God. Well, that's not, that's not biblical. It's just yeah. not biblical. There's nowhere you can point in the Bible to prove that that's true. It could be small and be a move of God. So, so it's just, we're imposing, we're imposing the category values as Americans. Yes. The Bible doesn't impose the category values. We do that. We take an American value and we say, okay, then this is what it must, this, this, this must be what success is. And, and Jesus almost always is much more balanced than that. He's, he's cross-cultural. He doesn't, the way of Jesus does not need to be conformed to the American way any more than it needs to be conformed to the Ugandan way. Right. So like we, we've got to be very careful that like, we're not, it's not a bashing of American, of, of Americans. Cause we're Americans. We're not bashing American. Yeah. We're bash up. We're, what we're saying is we've got to be careful that we're not presenting uh, the American way as the Christian way. And, yep. and so that's my biggest thing. Cause I, I want to make a comment about this. Like in most recent generations, I think this kind of mega church movement, lots of people, that was kind of the value of like, okay, that's what's going to be evidence of a move of God in the last 18 months though, I've seen it shift. And all we've done is replace what we're trying to say a move of God is that still doesn't really reflect what scripture talks about. And so we, now we've replaced it with like social causes or missions. So now it's like, okay, don't try to get the most number of people in the room, try to get the most number of people doing mission. Okay. Again, not bad, not bad. Gathering lots of people, not bad. Getting the most number of people doing social work out in the community, not bad. Both of those things are good things. Neither of those things are still the gospel. <laughs> Neither of those things are still the heart of what it means to be the church. The heart of what it means to be the church is relationship. It's not me doing more things for God. It's not me getting more people for God. Like we've got to be very careful to distinguish between what can be evidences of a move of God. Large numbers of people coming to faith can be an evidence of a move of God. People out doing the mission of God, serving people in the community can be evidences of a move of God. You know what they can also be? Just evidences of people wanting attention. So, <laughs> so we've, we've got to be very careful that we're not just calling things yeah. move, moves of God yeah. just because we think that they are, that there's genuine relationship with Jesus. And we got to be careful what we, I use the language of baptize into the church. We got to be careful what we baptize into the church of saying this is what it means to be the church when actually that thing's very American. It's not, it's actually not distinctly Christian. Yeah. And I think some of it goes back to what you talked about earlier. That was like, I mentioned earlier, I had not really thought about that metaphors and language and the way we view the church will influence how we feel that we ought to participate in it. And for many people that, you know, if you're in something that keeps getting called family and the people treat you like garbage, like, and you don't feel welcomed or you don't feel valued or you don't feel like you're gaining anything spiritually from it, it probably isn't looking like family. Like, and, and, <laughs> yeah. and what a healthy family yeah. ought to look like. I know there are family yes. situations that are, that are, that model can be difficult for people to understand and connect to because they've come from a background where family is not a good thing. But what it ought to look like is when you look at those metaphors that are used in, in scripture, um, they are good things that are influenced yeah. by the way of Jesus. And something I've talked about, I talked about in the very first episode of this podcast is the idea of being an apprentice to Jesus yes. and emulating being covered in the dust of the rabbi shout out to Rob Bell. Um, and so like those things, you know, I think are so important. Um, 
And what we've been talking about is if it if you can't do that within the model of church that you have going on, then maybe it's not really looking like following of Jesus as it yeah. as it yeah. looked like for many, many years. And so, right. you know, I would like to. So let's we've kind of deconstructed, you know, the view of this American church or whatever. Um, so where do you think we need to and we've kind of hit on this some begin to like rethink and then reconstruct to resolve these issues. And I think practically um, what you're doing as a pastor, I think is very helpful. And I think, you know, create even in, in big churches, you can do this by shrinking into groups that are looking to become family. And some churches are doing this. I've, I've been at a, a mega church, worked at a oh, mega yeah. church, and like they have some small groups where those people are family and those people mm-hmm. love each other. And those people have gained value in their spiritual walk and following of Jesus right. because they're in those groups. Right. And it goes back to like what I mentioned, the, those metaphors of family and stuff. So, you know, where do we kind of begin? I think, I guess, challenging this and then like rethinking and reconstructing um, and finding resolve to these issues that we've kind of been talking about. Yeah. 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 So, so I actually um, have started a whole new, we're just finished a whole new blog series. That's kind of the follow-up to this initial book that begins to do some of that. It begins to flesh out, okay, how do we then, how do we then re- recover, reclaim? A lot of people are doing different words, using different words. Yeah. Um, what we really feel like um, the church looks like and is, and the experience of the church should be. And I, I go into acts with it. I take an entire series um, and it and it will become um, a follow up book to this, and it it just goes through Acts, like we just walk through Acts, like okay, well then why don't we walk through the book in the Bible that describes how the Holy Spirit set His people up to begin with, and so it it starts to identify some very basic principles of just what does faith look like, and can you do those things as a part of a large group of people, um, as a as a part of a small group that's connected to a large group of people? Of course you can, and yeah. and. And should every small group be connected to other small groups? They should. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, even in what we're doing, where we're talking about, hey, we want to have these small families of faith. We want all of those families to have a connection to one another. We want there to be extended family still. So it's not a, it's not this like exclusionary. We just have to have only small groups and those small groups don't interact with other small groups. That's not, it's not what we're talking about. We're just asking, do we have to have the large buildings? Do we have to have the weekly large gatherings? Do we have to do all of these things the way that we've been doing them that are very American? They're distinctly American. The Iranian church, which is the fastest growing church in the world right now, we're pretty sure, um, has none of that, literally none of that. They can't. And they're doing just fine, I think. So like, that's all we're asking is, do we have to have those things? Are those things actually of the value that we keep putting on them? The importance we keep giving them, are they actually all that important? Are they actually all that value? And where you end up is you just end up in a both hand. You say, yeah, they can be. So people who want to do that, go do that and do it well, but make sure you have spiritual families as a part of it, that you're you're a large gathering of spiritual families. Like you gotta, you gotta make sure you're at least headed in the healthy way that the scriptures intend. And to me, Acts really does the best job of explaining it, that it's, it's really super simple. There's not, there's not a lot of complication to it. There's a lot of relationship. There's a lot of community. There's a lot of time spent in the word of God and in prayer and in sacrificial giving and it's really that simple. Like there's, 
there's not all this complication to it. There's not all these discipleship paths, pathways and leadership pipelines and all this language that you use nowadays in the church. There's, there's not this guest services experience. There's not, it's just so confusing to me. Like we've just overcomplicated um, the church at the end of the day. And, and I know right now the recent language this is something I've mentioned to you in passing before, but I'm, I'm talking about it more and more now because even the language of deconstruction reconstruction for me is, is a modern way to talk about what the Christian experience is. It's a modern philosopher that came up with the yeah. language of deconstruction and the biblical metaphor for me of what that experience is like, because I've gone through it multiple times now, one time where I almost left seminary, left the church, almost walked away from, from all of it. Um, the really, the experience is purification. It's really getting back down to what is essential. What is actually a relationship with God and a relationship with God with others in community? Yeah. What is it actually that we're trying to do? That's really what it is. It's this purification. And what has happened in the American church is we've just added things, added this, added that, added this. And then we'll We'll say, oh, well, that's not good. I'll take it off. And then we just add something back. So like we just <laughs> yeah. keep adding things and, and it's like, wait a minute, y'all, maybe the goal isn't adding the right thing. Maybe the goal is getting rid of the right things. And the irony is like even the non-Christian leadership world is coming around to this. And it, it, even just the non-Christian non -Christian culture, the general American culture, simplicity has become a value, right? We all know who Marie Kondo is. <laughs> Why? Because of this value of like getting rid of things that I don't need. And so there's this irony that somewhere in people, somewhere in the image of God of people, somewhere in how God has created us, we actually do know that simple is better. We actually do know that sacrificing is better than uh, hoarding up things. We, we actually do know these things are true, but somewhere in the church world, it's become very popular. It's been become very, easy it's become very normative to not do the hard work of asking those questions to not say do we actually need this to not say hey what are the things that we have built upon the foundation that aren't of value and that we need to purify away that we need to let burn away i just knocked my mic off i apologize <laughs> that we need to just burn allow the holy spirit to burn away and so to me that the biggest a uh, way to kind of reignite, to kind of regroup, to whatever language people want to use, reclaim uh, what the church is always meant to be, is to get back to some of these simple rhythms of relationship uh, that Jesus had. These simple rhythms of relationship with God and with one another. Uh, they're not complicated. They, you know, eating together is a great one. Um, and you eat together with the acknowledgement that Jesus and God are there with you. And you have conversations around the apostles' teaching. And you spend time in intentional prayer together. And you become friends. And you become family. And you begin to sacrifice your lives for one another. You begin to see, hey, this person has a need, right? I need to meet that need. But I can't know about that need and meet that need if I don't know them. I, I can't. It's impossible, right? So, like, I have a close friend of mine. And He's, he's been struggling, really. He's in church leadership. He's been struggling, not just overall, like he's struggling with, do I believe in God still kind of stuff, right? And he's in this very difficult place and I'm just checking in on him. Like I'm just walking with him in relationship and friendship. And, and in checking in on him, I find out like he's also struggling 
with some financial stuff. And I'm like, well, hey, what do you, what do you need? Like what, how much money do you need right now to feel comf- like safe, secure, like you can make it through the next however many weeks? Like how much money is that? Tell me a number and it's yours. And like, do, you know, I don't have a lot of money. I don't, <laughs> I don't have a lot of money either. Like I don't throw in cash around, but I have enough money to help meet the needs of others who are in need. I do. If I'm willing to sacrifice, if I'm willing to go without, if I'm willing to say, hey, I value them in the same way that I value Jesus, which is how Jesus taught us to look at other people. And so these are very simple things. They're not complicated. They don't require Bible degrees to understand. They don't require you to be a leader of a congregation to live them out. Um, But they're things that we have, for whatever reason, moved on from, or we've modified and we're doing them in lesser degrees, more surface level ways. We've, you know, Sunday school was a good thing when it started. Over time, it's not become so good. So what did we do? We created small groups, but most small groups, I've spent most of my life studying small groups and implementing small groups before I became a lead pastor. That's what I was doing in churches. And most of it is very shallow and surface level. Most of it is very like rah, rah, let's be friends, but let's not really actually go anywhere deep with one another and become like family. And that's disappointing to me. Like, that's like, well, now we're just getting like little bits and pieces of really what God wants, the deeper things that God wants for our lives. And, um, and so that to me, it's a, it's a recovering of this very simple, but very intentional um, rhythm of life in relationship with God, with others, others have to be a part of your relationship with God. And so, yeah. And that's a nuance that I want to make sure I'm very clear on because there's a lot of guilting and shaming going on right now from church leaders about people getting back to church, which is incorrect language in and of itself. You can't go back to church. You can't go to church at all. You can only be the church. Well, well, this is the thing is there's the problem is, is there's a half truth in it. They're saying you can't do the Christian life by yourself. Yeah, that's true. However, the solution isn't necessarily going back to a large gathering. That's what we have to be very careful that like we're, we're presenting the solution as this is the only way that you can experience the body of Christ. And it's just not true. Someone needs a spiritual family, a thousand percent. The sad reality is they likely got saved and never had a spiritual friend. They were never welcomed into a spiritual family. It didn't happen in the context of having spiritual fathers and mothers and spiritual brothers and sisters. And so from day one, they were never given that for many people. I wasn't. I wasn't, I was saved into an organization. I experienced this amazing thing and then had to go seeking out people who could actually be spiritual family to me because no one, no one just did it with me. And so for a lot of people, that's what has happened. And and they need spiritual family, but they've also never been offered it by the church in many cases. And and that should sadden us, it should burden us, and it should then call us to get back to doing that. If we can do that well within a large organization, do it, do it. If you can do it well by breaking up into smaller organizations, do it, break up and do it. I don't care how you get to it. We got to get to it. We got to get back to this devotion to God while being devoted to one another. Um, It's the only way we can love God and love our neighbor. It's the only way. Yep. I think that all of that, I think all of that will resonate with the people listening, Drew. I really appreciate you coming on. 
Um, I think that this book can be really helpful for some people. If you're someone that, and what I'm finding is there are people that have deal with, you know, faith struggles and, and the word is deconstruction. That's what we'll use it, whatever. Um, they're the people that are struggling with a lot of that. It's either like, I think philosophically or it's, um, personally. So philosophically of like, I'm doubting God, doubting the scriptures, things like that. Or, um, personally, I've been hurt by the church personally, been offended by the church. I'm personally watching what Christians are doing and, and I don't like it. So I think that if you're the person listening to this interview and you've personally been kind of affected, I think that this book could be something that helps you. And I hope that the conversation that we just had um, can resonate with you as two people that have been involved with church for a lot of their life that see it, that see some of these issues uh, and recognize that there has to be a direction that we move towards that helps people. So um, if you've listened today and this has been helpful, I, you know, I just would encourage you to check out this book by Drew, No Longer Self-Evident. Um, you can find it on Amazon. I will put it in the notes of the podcast and uh, you can check out some of Drew's blog posts. Where, where's some of the blog is on, is it on Victor's blog? I think it is. Or yeah, it is. It's on Jeremiah's vow is the name of his blog. Um, so Jeremiah's vow, I think it's.com, not.org. So well, I'll, Jeremiah, I'll put that in the notes. Also. Put that in the um, notes too. And, um, I, hey, and I do want to say like, I, if someone has been hurt by the church and if they're philosophically or ideologically questioning their own faith and if they're disappointed with how the church has responded to things um that's that's like that's me like i i was extremely hurt by the church i i also did a podcast companion to the book so they can go find the podcast companion and i share some of that these stories that were that are and were very painful so i've been hurt by the church i almost left it all i've questioned the things you're questioning like people get all mad at me (laughs) acting because because they've never just asked if i've walked that path before and i have like i'm not coming at it from some like (laughs) hey i know what's right for you i'm coming at it from i've been there i've been there let's do this together just don't do it by yourself like let's just let's do this together because i've been there and there's still times and I'm like, yeah, I get, I get mad at the church. Like, why yeah. are we doing this? So same, same. Yeah. And yeah. so that's, and that is the hope of this, this podcast, that's right. the hope of this, con- this conversation is that right. hopefully you can find people to walk with you in this. And you know what? I, I, my biggest thing for you is if you're listening and you're dealing with things, we're not telling you how that needs to look mm-hmm. and you need to be able to, we just want, we just hope that someone would walk alongside you in that. And so Drew, thanks again, man, for coming on, you you know, um, me and Drew text all the time. So we, (laughs) this has just kind of been a culmination of like several probably years of just thoughts and things like that. And, and, um, but yeah, go check out the book, Drew. Thanks for, thanks for coming on and thank you all for tuning into another episode. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of Rethinking Christianity. I hope today's episode was challenging for you and it presented maybe a new way of thinking about how you view the church and how you approach the church. Uh, And again, this conversation is not you know, intended to bash big churches or small churches. Um, It's really just to kind of critique a, maybe a mindset that we often operate out of. And this is something that I've been guilty of. Um, But I hope that this conversation was helpful and just challenged you uh, and maybe made you think about some of the things that Drew was presenting about how the American culture and the American way has influenced the church. And like I mentioned, Drew has this book and he has some other stuff that he has out there. I will put those in the listen notes and the the show notes if you want to check those out i would encourage you to do so if you could do me a favor again by sharing 
reviewing and rating the podcast. That would help me out tremendously uh, because it helps other people that are listeners like you find Rethinking Christianity. And I think these conversations have been really helpful for myself, uh, and I think they could be really helpful for others also. So with all that being said, thank you again for tuning in to Rethinking Christianity. And until next time, I'm Blake.